Ramache first requests us to set our mind in the noble disposition of bodhicitta, uh, intending to study and practice Dharma for the welfare of sentient beings throughout the limitless expanse of space wishing in loving care to bring each and every one of those beings to the utterly perfect and most pure, precious state of enlightenment. And in our study of Dharma, now we are looking at this uh, text which is called Pointing Out the Dharmakaya, a text on Mahamudra, and within that text we are studying uh, shamatha meditation, meditation of um, peaceful stability. In this uh, section on shamatha, um, it starts out by saying there is a need to use the body well and to use the mind well. And in fact it's expressed as the essential things for the body and the essential things for the mind. And we've already considered the posture, which is the main thing for the body. Uh, our meditation experience is connected to the way our body is. Our meditation experience is connected to the activities of the mind, and body and mind are themselves are connected. And this means when the body is not set properly, then this has an influence on the mind, and it makes the meditation harder to achieve fruition. 
ตัวนี้ตาเส้นละกว่าอย่าพูดจีเดินโดกันดุอ่ะงั้นเราจะมาเขียนดีๆแล้วสักกว่าเราเนี่ยงงงงงงงงงงงงงงงงงงงงงง
Yesterday we were introduced to the first meditation technique, and even though it's the first one, in fact this is called the king of shamatha techniques. It's the very finest. It's the ultimate technique. So there are three ways of describing it. It's, it's the king of techniques, it's the highest or ultimate technique, and it's the very finest. And if you remember, that was for the mind not to dwell on the past in any way, for the mind not to anticipate the future in any way, and then as far as the living present moment is concerned, just to sit naturally with whatever arises, with that becoming the focus point for the meditation within that second. This is the king of meditation techniques, and um, if one can manage that, then you don't, if you can manage that, you don't need any of the other shamatha techniques. That's the king, that's the ultimate. It's like, if we go back to the analogy of language, um, if already you're very gifted in English, you can read it, understand poetry and sophisticated things, there's absolutely no point in going back to learn the alphabet. No point at all. Or the Tibetan language, you don't need to learn the Tibetan letters if you can read Tibetan well. So like this, if this meditation can be accomplished, then the others are not necessary. <coughs> Although it's the, the finest technique, it's not the easiest. And especially for beginners, uh, it may not be that easy to master. And so the, the text, uh, the instructions say, uh, if you can do this technique, then that's the best. But if not, then... And so then after that, we have a series of techniques which are more suitable, or let's say that's, which are yeah, suitable for beginners who can't really get much result from that king of techniques. As far as, um, let's say, more, more accessible techniques for beginners are concerned, then there are those which use a support, a tangible support, and those without a tangible support. Those with a tangible support use some object, most often an object to look at, for instance, as a focus, as an anchor for the mind, and uh, the ones without a support don't have this external um, or this concrete anchor. And of those two, perhaps the one that uses some tangible support 
is the most accessible. Uh, for a beginner, the mind is less likely to wander when it's anchored on some tangible support. So this use of a support uh, is in fact quite convenient as a first step uh, for a beginner uh, to meditate on. When there's something that you have, your meditation practice means you sit, you look at an object, you keep your gaze, your visual awareness focused on that object, you bring it back when it wanders. Um, this is something that's quite doable. And when there isn't a tangible support, when the focus is in the imagination or somewhere else, it's harder, it's less simple to maintain it than when you have something right there in front of you to focus on. This is why it's easier. Then also, when one's a real beginner in meditation, it's very helpful to find the right sort of environment to meditate in, a place which is conducive to meditation. Mm-hmm. What is helpful is a place which is nice, a place which is spacious. Uh, because when it's a pleasant place to be in, and when you're not cramped in, when you, your eyes can see for some distance, when there's a feeling of, of space and openness, then in those circumstances, because it's a nice place, the mind can um, relax into its concentration more easily, more readily. Whereas if you have a feeling of being confined or the place isn't that nice a place to be, it already makes some agitation, some distraction that hinders a bit the process of focusing. So this uh, spaciousness is quite important, whether it's uh, in terms of what's outdoors or whether it's if you're in a room, then uh, in a room, a room that has some sense of spaciousness where you're not uh, cramped in. For most people, this is very, very helpful. Not for everybody, because people are different. 
And so that's up to each person to find out just which circumstances are conducive, the ones which do help you when you sit down to practice, where you can, they help you to get into the practice as quickly as uh, possible. But for most people, this uh, feeling of spaciousness, of a nice place to be to meditate, is supportive. ตาจีดาจีคิดไปดูอยากเดินเสียกันดูแล้วเลี้ยงตัวบ้านเลยอยากกันเลี้ยงเขาอยู่ดีแล้วนะเดี๋ยวนี้มีป้าจีละเดี
not a big thing, not a big piece of wood, not uh, a big rock to meditate on, but uh, smallish, quite small. This helps the mind to focus. This helps. And so yesterday we had the, um, or yesterday, the day before, the instructions in posture. So if we, when we are sitting in the correct posture, with all of the seven points and the chin and the eyes and so on, then in that posture, it's said that the gaze is focused, is, is parked. It's, the gaze is parked, the, en- the eye energy is parked, some four fingers in front of the nose. Well, now when we focus on an object, that's not the case anymore. The eyes will be looking at the object of meditation, but given that we're sitting in that posture, we need the object that we're focused on placed somewhere convenient. We don't want the fact of having to look at the object to be something which spoils the posture. We don't want to be looking down too much or looking up. We need to be able to maintain the posture so then to find some way to put the focus object uh, conveniently in front of the eyes. Too far away is not good. Too far away uh, is not good because one has to use the visual power too much to be aware of it. Too close is not too good because that strains the eyes, it makes the eyes cross. So we need to find a place for the object which is where the gaze can settle on it very, very naturally and conveniently. And then once once you've found that place, then we are not looking at it intently. It's simply an anchor for our consciousness. Our visual consciousness is settled with that object. And it's not like when, for instance, if you're reading and it's small print and you can't quite read it, so then you have to really squint very hard or look very hard. We're not... uh, looking at the object to try to analyze it or do anything like that. We, if, there's, if we're looking at it too much, the eyes get strained, the eyes water, you get headaches, sometimes you can get hallucinations, um, eye flickering. We are not staring at it, looking at it. It is just simply an anchor point for visual consciousness. ตีกาสลาอ่าตีตะเดียงนานดาทิเลนานดากะรีละกอนาตีขะดูกะรีนดาวนิสิบูรีมะบูรีตะนี่โคเจลันดาวนินานดาตากะรีนดาวนินาอ
once we have the object in place and we are um, placing our visual consciousness with it, then there is, should be no analysis of the object or thinking about it in terms of, well, let's say there's a pebble, for instance, or a little colored dot that we've drawn as a focus, then there's no thinking, it's yellow, or it's red, or it's white, or it's triangular, or it's square, or it has this sort of a pattern, or that sort of a pattern. Um, This sort of analysis is not at all required. It's not at all part of the meditation. On the contrary, it's something that uh, detracts from the meditation, because that object is simply there as a support for settling the mind. And any idea like yellow or red or round or square or any of these details about the object is in fact a thought. And one thought tends to lead to another thought and then the mind wanders away, it starts thinking about yellowness, roundness or any of these things, it gets distracted. The point of this meditation is not to think, it is to settle the mind. So this is why it is simply there as an anchor for visual consciousness and as a place to bring back the awareness whenever it does start to wander off in thought or elsewhere. Tinga This is transmission. (laughs) (laughs) Then, uh, so when, for instance, if this were the object of meditation, then uh, a little white piece of tissue, paper, then it's white is one thought. And then it's square is a second thought. It's made of paper is a third thought. And oh, there's a little pattern on it. That's a fourth thought. And it's quite convenient, actually, these small little bits of paper and so on. It just goes one thought after another. This isn't what we're doing. There's nothing to do with looking at, analyzing the object. The object is simply a support for visual consciousness, a support for consciousness. 
When one's practicing the meditation, then um, what will happen for uh, what happens is that the mind is uh, becomes distracted from this focus; it wanders away, or sometimes one gets uh, sleepy and um, heavy-minded, or sometimes it's just not possible to stay with the focus. The mind is too busy; one's too uncomfortable. Now, if those sort of things happen, so that one's really lost the idea of simply resting the mind with that object, then, on the contrary, we do think about those qualities because this helps restore the meditation. So just a little bit, we have the object and it's white. Yes, it's white. So we stay just for a little while with the whiteness and it's square, so then we stay just for a little while with the squareness and it's small, so we stay a little while with its smallness. Not too much, but just a little bit and this actually brings us back into the practice if we've got too sleepy or too mm, busy-minded. Kama Tenez-vous, 
When we are training in this practice, then it is very, very important to to practice with short, accurate bursts. So, three minutes, four minutes, at the most five minutes, certainly no more. And um, very often when we have our meditation time, then the actual session that we allocate for meditation practice is one hour or say two hours. Actually, if we look at what happens with most people when they do an hour's meditation, if we could break down that hour and analyze it, then most of the time is spent thinking of your friends, thinking of your home, thinking of different circumstances, or else you get fidgety or interested what's in the room. If we look at how much time within the hour is actually spent with the focus, it won't be that much. 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Whereas what we do uh, when we train in meditation is we have three, four, at the most five minutes, good meditation, disciplined meditation. The mind is with the object. And then three, four, five minutes, total relaxation. And then come back, five more minutes, very good meditation, high quality meditation, five more minutes relaxation. That way, if you did, say, a two-hour session, you'll have had one hour which was good shamatha and one hour which was, which say, lost in rest. But there was one hour of good shamatha. Whereas if you try and sit for two hours solid with your mind on that focus, really and truly, how much of the time will be spent in good quality meditation on the focus? Probably not even 15 minutes if we're really correct about it. So Ramitsa says this is, a, this is an important point and it's a very, very useful way to practice. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're at home or in your own room where you're just meditating by yourself, then um, you're quite free to do this. You can have your four or five minutes accurate meditation, then you can really jiggle about and loosen up and have a, a good break and then sit down for the next five accurate minutes. <laughs> Gone 
Lilabo Mari. Not all the bear, Rapa Momodu, Chava Momodu, not all the Taro Momodi. Tinting in the Tila, not all Rapa Menayo, not all Chava Gachi. Come on and do Ganat, not also Lilabo Mari. Not all Chava Tatagi, Momoyore, the Tigger Uni, come on out, Titula, Yapogana. Lilabo Mondu, I tend to tumble. So the target should be. Uh, in that case, then, five minutes of good quality shamatha. And this may not sound like much, but it's a lot. It's quite an achievement. It's already pretty good if you can do that, because uh, what count as distractions from simply resting the mind with the object are thoughts. And there are gross thoughts, and there are subtle thoughts, And actually, when we take a five-minute time period to spend five minutes where the mind has been able to settle with the object without being pulled away by the heavy thoughts, the gross ones, or without being distracted by the subtle background thoughts, that's already pretty good when we look at it in reality, in the practice. (laughs) Yapochitana, <laughs> Once that's achieved and there really are five minutes where the mind has been settled with its object and not distracted by the thoughts, then one can extend that to become six minutes and maybe reduce the break time from five to four. So then you've got a six to four relationship of meditation and uh, break. This is something that needs to be done uh, in, in terms of the reality of one's practice so that when you find that that five minutes can be achieved comfortably each time, then that's the time to stretch it to six or to seven. And if you find that the break of five doesn't need to be five, that four's okay, then that's when it needs to be reduced to four. So step by step, one can be increasing the practice so that the time of absorption, the time of settled mind is longer. And Rinpoche thinks that about five minutes is a good way to start. But sort of five minutes. This doesn't mean sitting, looking at your watch every ten seconds. Does he hear that? That's okay. It's three and a half minutes. It's nothing at all like that. Sort of five minutes. Give yourself that sort of a time as a target. and uh, But not with a stopwatch or something ticking away on the side uh, so that it's you know, exactly... It's a 
Thoughts aren't nice. They're wicked. <laughs> because when you don't want to think of them and you don't want them to come, and all the more of them come. <laughs> they, oh, that's not right. They come even the more. Even more of them come, or whatever it is. <laughs> anyway, they're tricky. Uh, so that you don't uh, want them, but the fact of not wanting them doesn't stop them, and the, sometimes the very fact of wishing they weren't there makes makes them come even more strongly. I think that's it. <laughs> ตัวบ่ตั้งกองเจียกูเสียกาเทนะโอ้เทมูเทมูบ่เทกูดูเนี่ยตาเยกูเตเตนะเตนตาจกเตนจิกูเตนะยูกูเตนูเสียมันดู
So if when we sit and we meditate, we're thinking um, of attaining some state undisturbed by thoughts, then that's almost guaranteed to make the thoughts come. Whereas if our attitude when we sit down to meditate is, oh, well, they come, they come, not bothered, then that very attitude tends to help them not to come. So if you feel it doesn't matter, they come, they come, they don't come, they don't come, uh, they'll tend to diminish. Whereas if we think, I've got to meditate without any thought coming in and to concentrate on the object, you can guarantee that that will stimulate lots of thoughts to ตั้งนี่เปียจีก็นอตุบาดกอตุเปียจีก็นะเปียนะตั้งดินุนี่ตั้งดิจูเจนะโมบดัวตะชะปะตุมาเสียยายอยายอยตั้งดิกุงโอ
if we uh, take a, an analogy for this, then um, is making the analogy of a mother and a child and in a place like here, in this temple. So imagine we cleared away all the fragile, delicate stuff that's um, here and there, all the breakables, and that we closed the doors, or the mother closed the doors. Then the mother could be sitting there where Rinpoche is sitting, and the child could be left to wander around, to crawl around the temple, and there wouldn't be any danger. The doors are shut, the child's not going to wander off, is within view all the time, can't break anything because all the breakable things have been tidied away. So then the mother can just sit quite comfortably, and uh, although keeping an eye on the child, there's no need to really worry too much because there's, there's not too much that can go wrong and the child's inside. And this is a very... So in this analogy, uh, the mother is like your meditator's mind and then the child is like thoughts and wandering th- thoughts. So that could, that's one possibility. If, however... Um, there's a feeling, there's total anxiety all the time. Where's the child now? What's it doing? Oh, it's going to break this, or there's something that's crystal over the glass. It's going to be broken, or it might smash the tormas, or set off the fire alarms, or you know, whatever it might be. If there's constant anxiety every moment that something's going to be damaged, the child's going to be in danger, then uh, the mother's just going to become a bag of nerves, and um, it's not very good. So if we take that analogy for the actual practice, if um, we don't have the feeling that our meditation is this uh, precious thing that can be shattered at any moment by thoughts, and if we're thinking all the time of thoughts as an enemy that will destroy it, and uh, so on and so forth, then we're going to sit in a state of tension, in a state of discomfort and anxiety. Whereas if we have the attitude, like the first attitude of the mother, where uh, we're totally relaxed about it. Okay, if thoughts come, thoughts come, let them come, let them go. Uh, Anyway, they can't do any damage. And our main job, while this child of thought is wandering around the temple of our awareness, our main job is to stay with the meditation focus, no problem. Then this will be a much more... uh, comfortable, a much happier way, a much more relaxed way and a much more effective way of um, meditating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
so this is, uh, these are some of the main points to bear in mind when we're doing shamatha meditation using an object. And although there are many types of objects which are described, um, this advice applies to all of them. So we've seen we can use a, a pebble or a small piece of wood. But um, again, Rinpoche is emphasizing that when we do use an object, smaller is better. And then once we have that object, then what we do with the mind, as he's just described, this attitude towards thoughts and practicing for short periods, these are the main points of advice. Uh, these are the main points of advice for developing shamatha. Red light district of Samuel. Uh, this is advice for the cultivation of shamatha, which means uh, a peaceful, stably settled mind. But as Rinpoche said yesterday, shamatha in itself is only something of mm, provisional or temporary benefit. It's not the ultimate benefit. It's something that many faiths or people do to concentrate the mind. The ultimate benefit comes from insight meditation, vipassana. And the reason we are cultivating shamatha, this settled, peaceful mind, is because then this becomes the foundation for developing insight into the mind, which is the shamatha, which gives us the high benefit that we are looking for. Nyon,拉马多龙,先一米四,你用,哦,马去把地拿的,他妈去去把地,他卡松,你要他去去呀,你要去都地,你要他过来,你要他过来,你要他过来,你要他过来,你要他过来,你要他过来,你要他过来,
we either receive the empowerments or imagine the uh, guru dissolves into us and we receive the uh, blessing. Um, And uh, then also from time to time, even though our main focus may be this um, pebble or small piece of wood, from time to time, even if we're mainly doing that because we're beginners, we can also try to do that first king of techniques that was taught yesterday, whereby just whatever comes up in the mind in the present moment, whatever thought, whatever activity, whatever it is, becomes the focus of meditation for that instant. In general, for beginners, it's it's found that using a small object like a small stone is a very, very useful way to start. But even if we're starting like that, then... Uh, we need to make small sessions with these breaks for devotion, blessing and some moments of that ultimate meditation of all where whatever's in the mind in the moment becomes its focal point. Mipatiakadu, <laughs> In the texts, actually, we often find quite a series of shamatha meditations using different types of uh, focus, different types of mind anchor. Uh, And there is no order to these, there is not one that then, be, you know, then you move on to the better one, then you move on to the even better one. There is no order of quality in these. They are just different types of ways of focusing the mind. And um, what matters is that the mind is settled. So from that point of view, um, any of these focuses has the same value as um, another one. It's uh, the different focuses are there to help concentration in different ways, very much as different types of medicine are there to treat different sicknesses. We can't say this medicine is better than that medicine, or this is even better medicine. Whichever medicine is there is good because it treats the particular sickness we've got. So uh, these different types of anchor for the awareness can have their own particular qualities, but in themselves... It's not a question of one is of more value than another. It's a question that they help us in different areas. Whether we're doing this shamatha stabilizing the mind or vipassana, insight, meditation, whichever one of those practices we are engaged in, there are three factors 
which are of vital importance in meditation and that we really ought to know. Ta karinda ujore la na gamje dula yomena no to pe mombo no to pe thoi tu so ki ore. Yomena no to mantho pa pe nu panda wcho nyanda ku kare kaye koi makiba mantase da wondo tu so ki ore. Yomena ta ki nu pa yomam thoa yomai ni Three situations of meditation. One is uh, where the mind is, uh, we say, troubled, disturbed, harassed by uh, many, many different thoughts. Another is where uh, the mind is uh, sunken in torpor or in uh, sleepiness or in dullness. And the third is when the mind is well settled. ตะนี้ตาเตลานะแมงอซั่นยอเรกอนทาตะนอตุนโทเปมอมโบชีแจมตินิเรติเตลานะเซนดันเตนิมะเนนเรเซนซะซะชีเซนกาซินะโลกะ
If the meditation is working as intended and we do um, do the sort of things we do to tighten up, to straighten up the mind, then this gives rise to more and more thoughts. If when the meditation is going as intended we apply the advice for relaxing the mind, then actually it will tend more towards a torpor and haziness. If when the mind is very busy and agitated with thoughts, if we try to correct that through discipline, um, through um, being strict and tight with the mind uh, in order to bring it into line, then it produces the contrary effect. It in fact encourages just more and more and even more thoughts. It's a bit like if there was uh, agitated water, then in an effort to settle it, you're picking it up and trying to do something to make it calm and flat. So the thing to do when the mind is very busy with thoughts is not to, uh, in a tight way to try and do something that counteracts the thoughts. On the contrary, it's to learn how to relax it out of that mm, busyness and distractedness. So that's like learning how to place the water container down and bit by bit it settles into calmness all by itself. If when the mind is already getting hazy and sleepy and vague and tired, if we apply the methods of relaxation, then it's just going to get even more hazy and tired and you'll probably fall asleep or lose the meditation um, totally. So that's not to be done either. Mm-hmm. So, of course, this is something that only each of us can know within the practice and come to learn to recognize when our mental activity is overexcited or when it's becoming sluggish or when it's just right. Then, she said, I'm going to do the lana, Lama de Lomani, 
Actually, when it comes to meditation instruction, um, to, to learning meditation, then um, the ideal circumstance or how it should be done is in a one-to-one uh, dialogue with a good meditation teacher. And uh, Rinpoche says he's, he's here, he doesn't understand English, you don't understand Tibetan, time's very limited. And so these instructions, it's very sort of general public instruction about um, meditation. But when meditation, when we, if we really want to further the practice and deepen it, then the practice brings up questions, it brings up situations, and then these situations we go to our meditation teacher and explain them, and they give us advice. On the basis of that advice, we practice some more, and they come back with the answers or you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing dialogue. And people are very different. The way people's minds work. Uh, so, some busy, less busy, the mental activity, what comes up in their practice varies so much from person to person that it needs to be on that um, one-to-one, on that one-to-one uh, basis. And then, Rinpoche says, you know, when it's the Buddha teaching, because of the Buddha's most perfect mind, then the Buddha's presence makes each person hear and receive the teachings totally suited to their own case, in their own language. Uh, unfortunately, it's not like that just now, so this has to be a very general teaching about the main points of meditation. But to say that really the way it should work is as an ongoing apprenticeship with a good teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we'll leave the teaching on the uh, Mahamudra text um, there for just now and uh, that gives us a little time to go on with the text on the vows and commitments. Don't 
呃,他给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个给你一个
traditions in India. There's the Staviravadins, there are the Savastivadins, traditions of understanding the vows. Um, there are those developed by the Vaibhashika, there are those developed by the Satrantika traditions. They have different ways of understanding this and they don't all agree about where this word, this term Upasaka applies. It's really quite complicated, but as far as we're concerned, if a lay person is observing those eight lay precepts, then they merit the name um, the Opasika, the person who is uh, uh, close, close to virtue. And then that is a basis for going on to the um, novice ordination. And the novice ordination, as it's, although its name doesn't mean that in Tibetan, uh, in the English it really puts its finger on the point but although there are those um, 33 rules we had yesterday of the novice ordination, they're the, they're the precepts that you are bound to follow, although at the same time you're trying to follow the vows of a full monk, of a fully ordained person. Um, so one's trying to practice those, although there isn't the commitment to stay by them. But of course that is the highest form of commitment to self-liberation. Dini Chuagachi <laughs> ラマティ、え、たちゅうペシャタニョラディティラ、たペシャペモモタニョジゲノティアカドンピラマタラヒュレ。いや、てに、サニャジェ、トニャジェ、マリゴ、ニャンコチョジェセカレレジェ、デワ
in whichever case it is, are the very foundation for all of the practice that follows. They're the basis for um, what we do in the practice as individuals or in in the community together. And uh, not to know them is both injurious to the practice and it's uh, what we could call a reason for shame. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, one should be embarrassed not to know them, or it's, one should feel it's shameful not to know the commitments that one's supposed to be committed to. So it's no good taking a certain level of ordination or of lay precepts, and you've sort of taken them, but you don't, just don't know what it is. That's no good at all. We should know. And there's um, a st- and not just assume it or pretend it. And Rinpoche is telling a story from the early days in the Kadampa tradition of um, a lama and uh, a student, and there the Lojuking Dikinangla, the Gajar Champukin, the Lomare Lama. Loma Mare Genu Jihere. ที่ลามาเดกันออลานาเจชิบุจิเกลุจิเลอุนดิจูการิฮีการิเซโยจิดิงะเปชะมุมบตาคิปะยีลาเรติงคิปะยินดิเตลาจูเตนิเอ
So then, uh, having taken those precepts, how are they? How can they be lost? Well, one way that they can be lost is if they are uh, offered back. Is the terms? If you give up your vows um, officially, that's one way. They are also these uh, pratimoksha vows. They are lost automatically at death. That's the second way. Then you domba pojeto, ah domba, ah kowa to domba poani, de tuji domba pana ya puyobari. Redi domba pana yung nipa mepa yimba mari. Karere lana no, ah monko yudina chupong huli da uchwalo yobari. Oh, de ba chemo yobari talayung. Then <laughs> Of those two, then, um, oh no, sorry, it's not of those two. It's, uh, if we take the first one, which is giving back the vows, then this is preferable to breaking the vows. It is much more beneficial to formally give back the vows um, through the correct ceremony or procedure than it is simply to uh, let them lapse and break them. And the reason for this, uh, so both of them are not, how do you say, they're not ideal things to do, they're not good things to do. Both of them come with negative consequences of some sort because one's given up something that was very helpful. But of the two, it is much more beneficial if one rec- if somebody recognizes that there is a, a danger or that they, they feel they know they're going to break the vows, they can't keep the vows anyway, then it's much better to formally give them back because then that time of vow holding has finished and they've been renounced. Whereas if they're broken, they'll be broken by one action and then this will lead on to something else. There'll be another action and another action because uh, because one hasn't officially given them back, then you have one injury after another, one breaking away after another, whereas to give them back is cleanly to finish it and um, then one's in a different state of um, being. Mm-hmm. 
Um, then the second case is when one dies. When we take the vows, actually we, they're taken from this moment until the moment of death. So that is the actual length of the commitment, which means that when you die, automatically that particular time period of um, that you're committed to, that you promised, pledged, uh, has finished and the vow lapses. Dinne うん、ティスオンダウドテリオマレ。うん、ティスオンダウドテリオマレ。え、ティニティカリシェイゴレジナ、タ、ドナナ、ツェマンプシパド、シャマンスパドドンバレ、ネジマトウ、テジロキニエ
from the Buddha time of taking the vows for a prescribed time period, one year, two years, three years, four years. And although it's not a, a major point, it's important to know this because in the West many people take their vows for a defined time period, one year, two years, uh, three years. So um, it's good to be aware of that because if one day you find that in the Tibetan tradition, which was all based on the uh, Savastivadin, there is no lineage of taking those vows for that time, then uh, it might cause a lot of um, doubt and worry. And there's no need because this is a very valid um, tradition from the very earliest days of Buddhist ordination it's just that that particular lineage of transmission um, didn't go uh, to the mainstream uh, Tibet. Tini geta che na un dombatunga siwari geta che di na na ta legendi osama di uni sondi ko tawa ta luta che bosi na tini un dombatu me bosi luari ta. There is uh, one thing that uh, immediately destroys the vows because we're looking at how we how you lose them. Uh, we saw so far giving them up, giving them back, or they're lost at death. Uh, when one renounces uh, belief in karma, cause and effect, this automatically loses the vows immediately. Mm-hmm. When there is a, a full breakage of one of the four root uh, precepts, not to murder, remember we had yesterday not to murder a human being, not to kill, not to steal, <coughs> not to commit sexual misconduct, not to lie, uh, the full breakage of any one of those causes immediate loss of the ordination. Mm-hmm. So, there are a lot of details about um, what causes the vows to be lost when we enter into them. It's quite vast, but what Rinpoche has just told us, these are the main points about how the vows are, are lost. But then on the contrary, once one's taken these precepts, how to nurture them. ตาเนาะอ๋อตาเนาะลาปะพุนะวะยอนะอ๋อดอมบายาเฉจูเรอืมตะนี้เอ่อมารอนโซดอมบาอ่าตะบายินยุงยิกาสันเลยชาเซอ
Sorry, that's wrong. Um, it's when there has been uh, a breakage or an offence, then uh, very often that offence can be remedied, it can be repaired, if the offence is admitted to immediately, if it's confessed immediately to the, to the other Sangha. If it's concealed, then it's lost. So this concealment or revealing of an offence is a vital factor in its ability to be repaired or the fact that it's lost. So then if the vow, if um, the vow has been damaged and it's not concealed, then the next step is to uh, to confess it, to make, to reveal that, and then to go through uh, a formal purification. So this could be like the reading of the uh, Three Heaps Sutra or uh, Confession. Um, that's it. So they're the main points about if something has gone somewhat wrong, how to re- how to repair it, how to how to keep the vows if something is going wrong but not disastrously wrong. ペンソンジマジャバレ The benefits of the vows are that these um, pratimoksha vows, vows of self-liberation, are the, the, the very foundation of all of the Buddhist work which follows. 
whether it be within the uh, basic Buddhism or Hinayana Buddhism, whether the Pratimoksha vows uh, are, or they are the basis for whatever one does as a bodhisattva, in any level of Buddhism, the very foundation for what we do is right conduct, and the very essence of right conduct is this committing the mind to good action and to the avoiding of negative action. So all goodness comes out of these, just like the crops come out of the earth, and if there's no earth, there can't be any crops and harvest. In the same way, without uh, these vows, one or another of these categories of vows of self-liberation, then none of the harvest of the other results can come. As far as the results themselves are concerned, then within uh, Hinayana Buddhism, these vows as right conduct serve as the basis for the practice which brings the states of various stages of fruition, uh, of uh, non-returner, one-time returner, non-returner, arhat, shravaka arhats, uh, other sorts of arhats. And then within the Mahayana, the Pratimoksha vows are the very basis for bodhisattva conduct and the fruition of that is Buddhahood itself. So, although it has been very brief, we will leave our study of the Pratimoksha vows there, and this afternoon, in this afternoon's session, we can go on to look at the Bodhisattva vows. So, Rinpoche has picked bits and pieces from here and there in this vast text that is the topic of this course. There just isn't the time to go through it systematically. There's not even a fraction of the time to do that. So then Rinpoche invites your questions. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Tampo Kamangat, Tesgaso, Dani Kamangat, Tesgaso Gugendo, the Ranshingi Tes, Dusurumpo Ladrona, the Digendo, Yapodo, the Kamangare, the Trim Songugendo. Tang Aruso, Lee Tombo Payana, Cacalities or Rimander, even the Himari, Cacalities or Jutunda, you Kerjina lihat tumbuh pada nanti lom pinjaman dulu. Tiada lihat tumbuh pada pinan janda gang kahdu gana yang oh cuci rimbun rawa gang tadi cik gang sahdu tiada rimbun rawa gang tak kaya ina tiada rimbun gana rindu. Tatkah abah main pak kagalah tiada jiran rawa yo kagalah mahun rawa tadi ina mati ina tunggari rendu tunggu segeri janda lom kahdu gana yang rimbun rawa gang tanda. Then it is a jerry one night. And the mind, but Cacarianda, Cacatuana, Rimbo Castle, a ring to Tuntu Castle, Tunji, then the mind, but there's a jito. Tunji gone the Yapu, eh? Carried in another, then it's all, eh? Gone Yapu, you do the runner, gone the jay gonna Yapu, you're a sore. Gone Yapu, made the jay gonna. Nipagon ญูโดนะตะนี่ก่อนยามบัตตะญูตุชอบมาเด้ตะนี่นะทุตุทุตุทุตุก่อนนะเยริมโบลาเตจุจินิปะทอนจิเพทุยอเด้เด้ตะน
the meditation is quite erratic. That is to say, sometimes it could go for six, seven minutes, sometimes it could go for two, three minutes with a fairly clear settled mind on the focus. Then the thing to do would be to draw back the target so that, say, three minutes is the target. And then all of those three minutes are good and effective. And then when that's very, very stable, then to make it more and more. Um, but that having been said, there is really very great benefit in meditating in short seconds. And even in cutting short what we could call a good meditation, that is to say when the mind is perfectly well settled, if one's making a sort of five-minute target, remembering that we're not sitting there with a stopwatch, you know, this is just sort of a general thing. But if it is going well, but that sort of time session you're used to has come to its end, there's a very great benefit in cutting the meditation short because you stop on a good point. It puts saliva in the mouth for the next session. Your mind is well settled. You have the joy of meditation and you stop because you know this is a healthy thing to do. So then you're anxious to get back. You're looking forward to getting back. Whereas if we stretch the five minutes to ten because it's been going well for eight or nine minutes so we leave it to run but then the thoughts come up and then you end up on a spoiled note. This doesn't it's not an appetizer for the next session. Um, we're getting to the point where each meditation session ends on a down. So the Kaju masters of old used to put great emphasis on this doing short, high-quality bursts of meditation. Oh yeah, and the second question, Rimshe said, this is a strange question. Um, uh, and I hope, so I hope I understood it correctly because he was saying to use the king of meditations as a break between the others he says that to me sounds very strange because first of all if you can do it then that's the meditation to be doing uh -huh. and then also because it is really something we should treasure as the king of meditation to see it as a as a break meditation is not so good. So, uh, going back to the answer to the first question, this was, uh, then it's like when we eat food, when there's really delicious food, then we're really looking forward to the next time we can eat some more of it. And um, but when the food's not terrific, not very good tasting, we can't say we're looking forward to the next time we go to that restaurant or we go next time we have that particular meal. So it's like this with meditation. We build up a, a reaction to meditation if it's really uh, 
enjoyable, if it's really interesting, if it's really producing something and we stop there, then we're really looking forward to coming back to more. Whereas if it's a mess, <laughs> then you're not looking forward to, you know, if it's not so good, then you're not looking forward to coming back to it. It's the same with, with anything for, when it comes to enthusiasm. So there we finish for the time. So maybe we'll take any more questions next time. Oh, sorry. No, there's time for one. There was one there, Jane. Yeah. Hira Hindi 
ที่เนี่ยเด้อยินริมบุกดุงหานูเฉยจมาเลยเยยนูนี่ลูกค้าหิที่ดุงหาเตยิมเมจิเอเมจมาเลยลีจินเดลาเตยนี่ชงวาจ
no suffering, just no serious suffering, such as a serious illness, happens all by itself. Every serious suffering has its cause in past karma. And in the teachings on karma, we see that uh, the non-virtuous actions are the ones that lead to suffering, and that those non-virtuous actions have to be experienced by the person who did them and that person alone. They can't be experienced by somebody else. It's also taught that having the sort of human existence that we ourselves have is the finest juncture, the finest circumstance for purifying past actions by living through them. That is to say, the suffering we go through now as humans is little compared with the suffering we go through due to the same karma in some other state. So even though it's painful, it is a a very precious thing to be human and go through suffering because through a little suffering here we can get rid of a karma that might be an enormous suffering in some other state. So when we say the doctor or the person administering it would need to have wisdom and skillful means, it would mean they'd need to know the patient's karma. They'd need to know what would happen to the patient after death in another existence, whether um, that final act of administering what they're administering would finish off the karma, or whether in fact it's just postponed it and that karma, which could have been a few more days' pain, might be something quite different. They'd need that degree of wisdom and many, many other factors, then it would be a deed of compassion. Otherwise, uh, it might be a deed of, of, um, of seemingly compassionate ignorance. Tinditi <laughs> ตนิตันโรเปมบอมบอเซเจมบอมบอดุยาตนิงารุโซอาเลงเงียนเดตันโรจินดุเตเซเตตันโรจินดุเตโลกะเซอีกวานาเตยดุงะเชคุเซเจ
Secret <laughs> <Six laughs> <of> teaching. That's <laughs> <laughs> still allowing me to change. Now you might need to change my battery. Yeah. 